My name is Jake Noyes. I'm a lead shepherd here at Flourishing Grace, and we are going to dive into the Word now. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and pull it out. If you don't have your Bible, there's a blue one underneath your chair that you can uh, can pull out. Um, If you don't have a Bible at home, that's our gift to you. Take that with you. We are going to be in Proverbs 4 today in verse 20, and if in that blue Bible, it's page 589. So here at Flourishing Grace, we believe that this is the inspired word of God, and so out of reverence for for the word, would you please stand as I read? All right, Proverbs 4.20. My son, be attentive to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight, keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, For from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jake. Good morning, everyone. My name is John. I uh, typically am one of the worship leaders here, but this morning I have the great privilege of being able to preach God's Word. Uh, But before I get started, I need to make a formal apology. Um, So a few weeks ago, I preached on Sabbath, and I preached on the concept of gatekeeping. And one of the items in that gatekeeping list was uh, hating on people who gatekeep rest and, and being tired. I said that some of my friends who were parents, when I would complain about being tired, they would say, you don't even know, and I kind of shunned them for that, and I just want to apologize, okay? (laughs) I understand now what you mean. Uh, We have a little baby boy who was born a couple weeks ago, Jonah Paul. He's actually here in attendance, and so... (laughs) Even though he won't remember this, I am nervous, so... um, So to that effect, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for us, pray for me. Uh, So yeah, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, that it teaches us, it encourages us, it does all of these things, and I pray that you would do that today as we dive into it. Lord, would you give me the words to speak? Would you empower every word that I speak in this, that it would encourage our people, it would draw them to holiness, and that, um, that Lord, you would also do the work on their hearts and open their ears to hear everything that you have to say, God. Would you do all of this work? Help us to live into what you have given us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, church. Well, we have been in a series called Kingdom Wisdom. This is, uh, we've been looking at the words of wisdom from Solomon and a few other guys. uh, And uh, we haven't really referenced the graphic here. This is not just some random old man. This is a painting of King Solomon. Uh, It's probably not accurate because I don't know if they made paintings back then. Maybe they did. Uh, This is obviously not a photograph. They didn't photograph King Solomon uh, back in the Bible times. But to make him look wise, they gave him a nice beard. I think that always indicates wisdom. And there's some scrolls and stuff uh, of his writings and all that. So uh, I was thinking about it. I'm never in my life going to grow as much facial hair as that man has in that picture. 
um, just because of genetics. That's just how it works. Uh, I could live two times and not grow that much facial hair. But, um, but here's the thing. Most of the Proverbs, they were written by King Solomon, by him to his son, or maybe collected by him and others. But we must understand, we must understand that the Proverbs are more than just good advice. Because of its inclusion in the Bible, which is the holy word of God, these are Solomon's words to his young son, but these are also God's words to us. So if these are God's words to us, we must take them seriously. We must obey its statutes. We must live according to its direction. Simply speaking, when the Bible speaks, we must listen. And here in our text, we find wise King Solomon pleading with his son to be attentive to his words. So therefore, this is God who is pleading with us to be attentive to his words. Now, why don't we look a little bit closely at our passage today again. This is Proverbs 4, verses 20 through 27, and I'm just going to add a little emphasis on some of these things that point out, uh, stick out to me. So he says, My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the left or to the right. Turn your foot away from evil. Just in this short passage, there are many, many imperatives given from the king to his son. And the whole collection of Proverbs is like this. It's uh, full of do's and don'ts. It's full of shoulds and shouldn'ts. And by the seriousness of the tone here, Solomon desperately wants his son to walk the path of righteousness, to walk the path of the wise, to, afo- to avoid the foolish way. Now, if it were natural for mankind to walk the path of wisdom, do you think he'd plead like this? Absolutely not. No, Solomon knows that it is the foolish path that is the most natural for us to take. In fact, we know that we are completely and utterly incapable of any righteousness apart from the work of the Holy Spirit inside of us. Ephesians 2 says that before Jesus, uh, before his work in our lives, we were dead in our sins. And it says that we were following the course of this world and following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. And so the Bible says we were following Satan and not walking in righteousness before the restorative work of Christ. And so it is only by the power of God that we can walk the path of the wise and not the fool. And even after, even after God has saved us from our sin by his grace to walk this path of righteousness, it takes effort, it takes work, it takes discipline. And that's what I want to encourage you towards today, that there is godly wisdom, there's kingdom wisdom in practicing discipline. All right, but before we get into discipline, I want to address the elephant in the room. When we talk about practicing discipline and growing in Christ-likeness, when we're talking about that versus the most powerful tool in the devil's armory in opposition to this practice, and that is legalism. That's legalism. Now, legalism is a particularly dangerous weapon in our context here in Utah, where many believe that good works earn God's favor. 
Now, on the other side of the spectrum, on our side, the evangelical church's side, there are many that have bought into this lie that once the one decision to follow Christ has been made, there is nothing else left to do and that anything beyond that is legalism. Now, I need to tell you something. I need to be very clear. That is not following Christ. What you did was you shook his hand on the path that you were going on. You told him that you liked his work, and then you continued on your own path. You didn't follow him. And so imagine if Saul of Tarsus, or better known as the Apostle Paul, imagine if he encountered the risen Savior on the Damascus Road and called him Lord and then continued to persecute Christians. See, this is the very same thing as living a decent life and then to be saved by Jesus and then to continue to live that very unchanged, decent life. The difference between legalism and practicing the way of Jesus is simply the order of these two things. Legalism says that good works merit God's favor. That's what legalism says. Practicing the way of Jesus says God's favor merits your good works. So in other words, there is no other way to respond to the love that God has shown us than to follow and worship him. You can't, you cannot walk away from encounter with Jesus unchanged. Again, Ephesians 2, in verses 8 through 10, this is what it says. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, God's favor brings us to walk in good works. It's not the other way around. Okay? Back to discipline. Back to discipline. Now, we've all practiced disciplines, uh, discipline in our lives to some degree, Whether it's to the ends of a skill or health or lifestyle, I'm certain that all of us have practiced discipline. I think specifically, we have many in our body who are coming off the Air Force base or maybe retired military. I think of the men and women who have served that way. They know what discipline is. Whether they've practiced self-discipline or they were disciplined by somebody else, they have practiced discipline immensely. But here's the thing. Their discipline was not just for the sake of discipline. In all cases... Discipline is a means to the end of becoming something you were not before. All right, I'm going to say that again. Discipline is a means to the end of becoming something you were not before. You see, we practice discipline in our lives because we see a goal, we see a skill or a life ahead of us that we can't attain unless we work toward it. Professor and author Donald Whitney, he puts it very simply. He says, discipline without direction is drudgery. That's the second time I've used that word in a sermon. I'm just going to keep using drudgery. You try to use it in your daily lives. We'll see how it goes. But discipline without direction is drudgery. And so for our purposes this morning, I'm talking about the classic spiritual disciplines of the Christian life and, so, and, and practicing them with true discipline. I'm talking about prayer, Bible reading, fasting, Sabbath. And actually, many of these things we're going over in our path groups. But if we practice discipline with no actual goal in front of us, nothing to work toward, man, we become discouraged. How many of us have tried to grow in the spiritual discipline of reading, of of reading our Bibles, but became discouraged because we didn't feel that we were just achieving our simple goal of reading the Bible more? How many of us sought to pray just because we should be praying more? 
If our goal is simply to be disciplined, when it comes to our walk with Jesus, it gets us nowhere. So what then should our goal be? Well, here it is. We practice discipline for the sake of godliness. We practice discipline for the sake of godliness. Our goal in practicing discipline is to grow in godliness, to grow in holiness, and more accurately, to grow in Christ-likeness. Romans 12 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Our mind must be transformed into minds like Jesus, into the image of Jesus. The goal is to live into the victory that Jesus has won over sin by turning away from sin and instead turning towards Jesus in his way, to be like Jesus in our thought life, in our speech, and in our acts. The Bible is constantly pointing us towards this, especially here in the Proverbs. Let's look at it again. Let's look at these uh, commands uh, in our text. It says, be attentive, incline your ear, keep them, keep your heart, put away, let your eyes look, ponder the path. Nothing about this is passive. This is a proactive faith that we are pursuing. If we commit ourselves to this kind of work, this kind of discipline, then our minds will be transformed and renewed into minds like Jesus. Any Christian discipline that doesn't produce godliness in our lives, that's unhelpful. Any Christian discipline that doesn't produce godliness in our lives is unhelpful. It's vanity. The Apostle Paul, in his first letter to Timothy, reinforces the fact that all other discipline is less valuable than training toward godliness. And so I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, and if you're opening up a blue Bible and you find 1 Timothy chapter 4, can you tell us where to find that? What page? Shout it out when you got it. 1099, page 1099. 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 7, and I'm going to hop around a little bit, but uh, you can follow along. This is what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Skip to verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God. Verse 13 says, Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, Verse 15 says, practice these things, immerse yourself in them. And verse 16 says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Do you all see how similar the language is here compared to our text in Proverbs? Paul uses these imperatives. He says, train yourself, toil, strive, devote yourself, Practice these things. Immerse yourself. Keep a close watch. Persist in this. Just like Solomon to his son, Paul to his spiritual son, Timothy, is pleading with him to practice discipline in his walk with the Lord, to put in some hard work. Now, quickly, as an aside, uh, I'm not smart enough to get into the Greek very often. It's something that I want to grow in, and so I'm practicing discipline to like get into the Greek language a little bit more. Uh, but the word that Paul uses here for train and train yourself for godliness is gymnos, gymnos or gymnos. This is where our word gymnasium comes from. This word actually has the heart of a workout. 
working up a sweat towards something greater. Work out for godliness, he says. But, but even more interesting than that, it also means nakedness. It means nakedness. And so what this means is that in their ancient competitions, the Greeks would participate in their games and in their competitions naked so as to not be encumbered by anything so that nothing would hold them back, even their own clothing. And so what this means is that as we train ourselves for godliness, as we pursue this end, we ought to throw off everything that would impede that purpose. That anything that stands in our way of our growth in Christ-likeness must, it must be thrown off so that we can walk the path of righteousness unencumbered. All right, back to our regularly scheduled program. We practice discipline for the sake of godliness. But the beautiful thing, the beautiful thing about growing in Christ-likeness is that it not only has implications on our inner life, but it directly affects our outer life as well. And so that brings me to the next point. We practice discipline to love God and love others. I'll say that one more time. We practice discipline to love God and love others. Now, Jesus in Matthew chapter 22 is challenged by the Pharisees, and and as per the use, he answers them perfectly and stumps them. They ask him, which of the commandments is the greatest? Of the original 10, which of them is the greatest? And Jesus says to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Many of us have heard this before. Now, in giving these two commandments, Jesus gives us clear instruction when it comes to the Christian life. We are to love God, and we are to love our neighbors. Now, who in the Bible can we say followed these two commandments perfectly? Jesus, Jesus. We can look at the example of Jesus. He is the one who followed these perfectly. All through the Gospels, we see Jesus flawlessly love God and love others. To do both of these things require massive discipline. I mean, we know some people that it requires discipline to love on, right? We all know those people. But when it comes to the example of Jesus, we often downplay his humanity in regard to how he acts. We often attribute all of his feats and all of his works simply to his divinity. Well, of course Jesus could do that. He was fully God. But what I want to do is I actually want to ask the question, how could Jesus live that way? He was fully man. This is what we should be asking. And though the exact details may be a mystery to us for all of time, there is no doubt that Jesus had to practice discipline to keep his humanity under control. Now, my favorite discipline of Jesus was... uh, is him often waking up before the sun was up to go to a desolate place and pray. Now, when you think about that image of Jesus waking up, what do you think of? Do we think of him like he does like a kick up out of bed and he's like, woo, like ready for the day and he like runs off onto the mountain and prays? Or maybe he's like a robot and he like gets up to a 90 degree angle with his legs and his eyes are wide open and he goes off and prays? See, I, I, I don't think that's what's happening here. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly, right? But What I like to imagine is I imagine a man who is weary from the previous day of hard work and he's got sleep in his eyes and halfway he's wishing that he could go back to bed. But he is motivated by the goal that he had clear in his mind and that is to grow in nearness to the Father. That was his goal. It was this kind of discipline that allowed Jesus to so perfectly love his heavenly Father and his neighbors. He didn't love them perfectly only because he was the God-man. 
He relied on the Holy Spirit. He disciplined himself. He practiced discipline for the sake of God and others. Now, what happens when we, when we practice this kind of discipline? What happens? Now, now imagine for a second that if, if we were to practice this kind of discipline, what would we see in our lives? Imagine what we could see in our homes, in our workplaces, in our towns. What kind of testimony would that be to the watching world? What kind of witness would we have as a church if we gave ourselves over to this kind of discipline? You see, I believe that many of the problems that we see in our church today, especially in the Western church, stem from a lack of discipline by Christians. I actually even believe that many of our culture's issues, they stem from a lack of an of a undisciplined church. Because if we were giving ourselves to the holy work of growing in godliness and growing in Christlikeness, we would be powerfully and compellingly loving God and our neighbors better. Why aren't we seeing revival? Why aren't we seeing people stand up boldly for the things of Jesus? Why do so few of us know where to point to in Scripture when we're challenged? And maybe, maybe we aren't disciplined. Maybe we aren't disciplined. You see, inward transformation will equal outward affection. When our inward mind becomes like that of Jesus, it will change how greatly we love the Lord and love others. See, what happens when we give ourselves over to this, when we give ourselves over to this kind of discipline, is that our wills become supernaturally bent towards the Father's will. If wisdom is a path, if discipline is a path, we often find ourselves off of that trail. This is why Solomon says to let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. He says to ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left and turn your foot away from evil. When we commit to practicing discipline in our walk with Jesus, we are taking these commands to heart. We are asking God to bend our will toward his, to bring us back onto the path of wisdom. We need blinders or else we get distracted and swerve left or right. Again, to walk the path of wisdom, this is not natural for us. Our flesh, our desire for our own glory, they will get in the way. But discipline is for the sake of putting to death these things. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, the Christian, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Did you catch what he said there? He says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Yes, we practice discipline to grow in Christ-likeness. Yes, to love God. But here, he emphasizes the importance of discipline that is evangelism. His sharing of the gospel would be compelling and powerful. This is what happens when we practice discipline in our walk with Christ. Our nearness to the Lord increases. We become more in tune with his heart. We start to think like Jesus thinks and care about the things that he cares about. And through this, we can't help but to love like he loves. We can't help but to do like he does. 
we would see an Acts level, like thousands were added to their number that day. We would see this kind of transformation in areas of our lives that we thought were long dead if we practiced this kind of discipline. We could see thousands of people in our community being saved and coming to a true knowledge of Jesus. This is a compelling church, not the powerless and impotent one that we've grown so accustomed to and even accepted. Now, here's the thing. Doing this requires massive upheaval and excavation into our lives as they are. We've resigned ourselves to the lie that this type of discipline is only for monks, it's only for clergy, it's only for people with more time on their hands, people who don't have big families. We say that it's only for single people or young people or old people. We make up any kind of excuse to not practice this kind of discipline because we think we don't have time. But the fact is, is that your life was not just singularly marked by Jesus at the point of salvation, but it is continually marked by him through sanctification. Growing in Christ-likeness is not just for a limited number of Christians. It's for the Christian. If you're a follower of Jesus, you will grow in Christ-likeness. And if you're not growing in Christ-likeness, odds are it's because you lack discipline. Now, for the past couple of weeks, uh, there's been a concept that I've uh, nerded out about a little bit. Uh, it's kind of a numbers game, and so I'm going to try to communicate it to you, and hopefully it lands, and hopefully you understand what I'm trying to say. But uh, this is an interesting concept when it comes to discipline. So author Malcolm Gladwell, he talks about a concept in his book, Outliers, that has now gained popularity on its own. It's that it takes 10,000 hours to master a skill. Is anyone uh, familiar with this concept, 10,000 hours concept? Okay, so, so in this book, he says it takes 10,000 hours to master a skill. Now, this comes from uh, the thought that most, if not all, chess grandmasters, they, to achieve that level of grandmaster, they have spent 10,000 hours just viewing the chessboard, replaying moves, and thinking about strategies, that they've taken 10,000 hours to do that, to become a master. Now, we know that you don't grow in something unless you give it appropriate time and effort. Now, when I was younger, when I was a teenager, I remember locking myself in my room for over two hours a day trying to learn Master of Puppets on guitar so that I would be a better guitar player, right? Like we've, we, I think we've all done something like that where it's like we get passionate about it and we just put in the time. 10,000 hours. If that's, that, that's the mark that we're going to work with, 10,000 hours. So I started this rabbit hole down in my brain about this number in the Christian life. Now, there are many, many people who call themselves Christians whose max interaction with the Lord, or, or anything really holy for that matter, is their Sunday church attendance. That's the max. In fact, the Barna Group, which is a group who studies trends in Christians and how they interact with life, uh, they define a practicing Christian as one who has attended church, uh, church gathering at least once in the past month. Once in the past month. My old pastor used to make a joke about those people. They'd call themselves regular attenders, but they're actually regular missers, okay? So, but here, just, just for our sake, let's give ourselves every Sunday, all right? So let's talk about Christians giving themselves every Sunday, and let's say that we're in church for two hours a Sunday, all right? That's the max involvement for many Christians. That's the reality. Now, how long do you think it would take for that person to hit the 10,000-hour mark? Any guesses? It's a long time, okay? So let's do a little bit of math here. Two hours a week, 
right? That's what we're talking about. Two hours on a Sunday, two hours a week equals 104 hours of a year, right? And if, it, if it's 104 hours a year, to hit that 10,000 hour mark, it would take you 96.2 years to hit that 10,000 hour mark if all you're doing is going to church on Sunday. 96.2. Do, do you know what the average life expectancy here is in the U.S.? It's 76. It's 76. From the day you were born to the day you die, you could go to church once a week and spend two hours every Sunday, and you would still be 20 years short of that mark. 20 years. And, and even more mind-blowingly, if we take our waking time, right, if, assuming that everyone in here gets eight hours of sleep a night, which I know nobody does, it's an unrealistic number, but just say we're getting eight hours of sleep a night, that means 16 hours a day goes into our waking time, times seven, right? Two hours is just 1.7% of our waking time. There is nothing in your life that you would expect growth in while giving less than 2% of your time and effort. Now think about this. This is another thing that my old pastor said recently, and it actually really intrigued me. He said, what if we tithed our day? What if we tithed our day? What if we gave 10% of our waking time to Jesus, to prayer, to reading the Bible, to practicing the spiritual disciplines, to thinking on things of the Lord? I mean, imagine that. Now, 10% of your waking time a day ends up being about 96 minutes a day. All right? And so if we took 96 minutes a day and we did the same math, how long do y'all think it would take to hit that 10,000-hour mark? (laughs) Here, let's do the math. 96 minutes a day equals 11.2 hours a week, which equals 582.4 hours a year, which then equals 17.2 years. 17.2 years versus 96.2 years. What a massive difference. 96 minutes a day. Now, I know a lot of you asking, who who has time for that? Who has that kind of time? Well, I I would challenge you to ask your screen time. I I would challenge you to ask your needless overtime hours. I would challenge you to ask your TV Listen, listen, I I understand that this is hard. I understand that practicing discipline in the Christian life is hard. And what I'm not saying is that if you don't give 96 minutes a day, you're doing it wrong. That would be legalism. What I am saying is that it takes work. It takes effort. We strive and toil to this end, Paul says. And the payoff, though it might not be instant, will be worth it for yourself and others. Nothing of great value in this life comes easy. But just like a new workout routine, just like picking up a new skill, you must give it time and sweat before you see the results. And the results of Christian discipline will be worth it. And Paul says it'll be worth it in this life and the next. So here's my plea to you guys. Here's my plea to myself. Just start somewhere. Just start. It doesn't have to be 96 minutes a day. Some of you could do that, and you'd start for a couple days, and then you get tired of it, and then you quit. But just start somewhere. Like when you wake up in the morning, maybe wake up 10 minutes earlier and spend that 10 minutes in prayer, asking God to give you his eyes that you would see the day like he does. Maybe at your lunch break, pull out your Bible, and I'm talking about a real Bible, like a book, because we know that your phone is just a gateway to endless distractions. So pull out your Bible and just read it while you eat. Every moment where you feel bored, just thank God for giving you the breath in your lungs that you have to breathe. 
but commit yourself to it. Don't just carelessly assume that you'll do it. You won't. You will not, but set reminders. Write them on sticky notes. Ask your more mature Christian friends to hold you accountable. Practice discipline. We actually have a perfect place for you to start this Tuesday evening. This Tuesday evening, we are uh, participating in our neighborhood prayer walk. Uh, We're going to get together. We're going to meet here. We're going to sing a little bit of worship, and then we're going to go out among the surrounding areas of our church, and we're going to pray for God and his mercy and his grace to cover this whole entire place. We're going to ask him that we would see repentance of sin. We're going to ask him that we would see salvation, that we would see revival breaking out in Bountiful, Utah. This is how it starts. This is how movements are born. God uses these disciplines as the kindling to massive outbreaks of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the last thing. The very last thing. Here is the hope that we have today. We've learned that discipline is hard, that committing our lives to the way of Jesus and wisdom and righteousness, it's hard work. It is a series of active choices against the will of our own flesh. But listen, if you have chosen to follow Jesus, if you have believed and trusted in his work for salvation, you have already made the first and most important step. What a a beautiful thing that is. And what a sure thing that is. That you have been plucked out of the hand of sin, death, and Satan and delivered into the loving embrace of the Father by the Son through the Holy Spirit, never to be plucked back. Our God has made a way and given us salvation. How can we keep from worshiping him? How can we keep from following him and doing the things that he says? It is this great love that we have been shown that draws us to loving him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. There's nothing like it. There is absolutely nothing like it. And if you haven't experienced that love, and if maybe you've seen the undisciplined church and said, there's nothing attractive about that. There's nothing compelling about that. And I, I want to apologize on behalf of, my, of myself and my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you've had to see, see the result of an undisciplined church and said, I don't want anything to do with that. But what I, what I can say, and I hope that my brothers and sisters in Jesus will join me in this, that from, from, from starting today, we want to practice discipline. We want our preaching to be powerful and compelling. But ultimately, if you don't know this love, I pray that the Lord would meet you. That you would see him as worthy of your entire life. The good news is that Jesus gave his life so that we could be reconciled to the Father. That he did the work of salvation that we get to participate in. Jesus, he went to the cross even when he desired not to. That's, that's discipline. That's discipline. He made a way. And so I want to leave you with this quote from a 17th century French monk. His name is Brother Lawrence. Great name. Um, and this is what he says. He says, let us turn within. Time is passing quickly and our very souls are at stake. I believe you have sought to respond to the Lord's spirit. I commend you. For this is the one necessary thing in our lives. We must, nevertheless, continue to work at it. Why? Because not to advance in the spiritual life is to go backward. 
Not to advance is to retreat. But those who feel the strong wind of the Holy Spirit go forward even in their sleep. And if the vessel of our soul is still tossed by the winds and storms, then let us awake the Lord who reposes inside. He will respond and he will quickly calm the sea. And let's advance in this. Let's give our lives to the Lord more and more. Let's trust him with our entire lives. Let's practice discipline. Let's keep our hearts with all vigilance. Let me pray for that. Holy Spirit, we know we need your help in this. We know that so much inside of us uh, completely wars against the idea of submitting ourselves to the name of Jesus, and it is only by your work that we can truly submit. And so would you help us to do that? In all of our acts, in all of our speech, in all of our thoughts, would you help us to submit ourselves under you? And would you help us to practice discipline in that? Would you help us to walk away from today wanting to pursue you with everything that we are, wanting to see your work in our lives? Would you help us to desire a church that is compelling and powerful? And God, would you help us just to start? There's so many of us in this room who don't even know where to start. So God, would you give us the clarity of mind to be able to just give you a little bit? Let us start there. And as you do that, would you, would you grow inside of us a passion, a real passion for the things that you care about? Would you help those things to bring life into our lives? Because we're dead without them. It is only by your power that we can do these things. And you are the only one who's worthy of all this. And so would you help us to practice discipline because we love you, because we care about you. Would you soften our hearts of stone, make them hearts of flesh. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.